FM. The following program is in English. You're tuned in to the Lachaim Summer Series with your host, Morris Klein, and yes, he is still my baby brother. Shalom Aleichem, Shalom Shalom, welcome to the Lachaim, to life, Jewish life and more, Summer Series. Team Lachaim is officially on Chofesh, taking a break until February 9th, 2022. So we are presenting the Lachaim Summer Series, featuring interviews from the Lachaim year that was 2021, with many of our excellent guests. Each Summer Series program will have a theme, kicking off tonight with three Australian Senators who are very, very supportive of our Jewish community, talking about the oldest hatred in the world, anti-Semitism. But first, let's hear the news from Jerusalem, courtesy of Israel News Talk Radio. You're tuned in to the first instalment of the Lachaim Summer Series here on 92.3 FM 3 Triple Z. It's going to be a hot series. Enjoy! I'm Ernie Singer, and this is your daily newscast from Israel News Talk Radio. As time runs out on 2021... The Israel Defense Forces said on Tuesday that violent attacks were up in Judea and Samaria this year, although two recent shooting deaths and an earlier one marked the lowest total in three years. The IDF called that significant success in its policy of thwarting attacks through the use of advanced intelligence. The military said the relative quiet on the Gaza front since May's fighting, in which 13 people died, is a mix of stronger retaliatory strikes against terrorists and completion of the Gaza perimeter barrier, as well as Israel's jobs policy for Gazans and Egyptian mediation with Hamas. The Jerusalem Post reports an IDF investigation has found that the decision to keep troops along the Gaza border fence near Nachal Oz, despite violent rioters being in close proximity, was a professional error that led to the death of a border guard sniper in September. A summary said the use of deadly weapons by the rioters was not expected. The probe found that there had been a number of errors in how the military responded to the riot, but cleared the commanders involved and disputed the claim that the military had been too restrictive with open fire regulations. The family of Staff Sergeant Barel Haderia Shmueli cited a commander for not taking action even after clear attempts by rioters to steal weapons, saying it was miraculous the incident ended in only one death. The IDF believes it significantly curbed Iran's ability to transfer weapons and equipment through Syria over the past year through its airstrikes and plans to continue them in 2022, although it does not believe it will ever fully block Iran's efforts to transfer advanced weaponry to its proxies. The military is also looking to exact a price from Damascus for permitting Iran to operate in the country in a bid to convince President Bashar al-Assad to halt or at least scale back the support. Prime Minister Naftali Bennett told IDF Radio on Tuesday that Israel will be able to act independently against Iran's nuclear program, even if world powers reach an agreement with Tehran, saying that former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's claim that Israel has committed to no surprises for the United States and won't be able to act against Iran is a total lie. Responding to the latest round of talks, he said Israel did not expect a good deal because the international community is not firm enough, treating Tehran as if it was strong, while the domestic situation there says it's not. Not ruling out a lockdown, Bennett warned that Israel is on the precipice of an unpreventable infection storm, the likes of which we have not yet seen, with a focus on children in light of a three-month high in new coronavirus infections. On Monday, the government told hospitals to prepare for hundreds of juvenile cases. 
Tuesday morning figures by the health ministry showed close to 3,000 new total cases and a positivity rate of nearly 2.35% on Monday, up 64% from Sunday. The Prime Minister stressed the importance of vaccinations in avoiding serious illness and made a first-of-its-kind plea for Israel's elderly to avoid crowded places. It has been decided that vaccinated individuals who are exposed to COVID carriers must isolate until they obtain a negative result from a PCR test and avoid crowded places and contact with high-risk populations for the next 10 days as of Wednesday. The unvaccinated must isolate seven days with negative tests before and after to leave quarantine. Citing IDF Radio, the Times raised a report. Public Health Director Sharon Arroyo-Price told government officials that if there is a shortage of tests, she would recommend skipping the one taken at the start of quarantine. The health ministry announced on Monday that it is cutting the time between the second vaccination and a booster from five months to three months in light of the Omicron variant. Sheba Hospital near Tel Aviv started giving health workers a fourth shot on Monday as part of a study. The ministry will soon cut down the number of countries on its red list, to which Israelis are banned from flying without special permission, but retain the U.S., Britain, Canada, South Africa, and France, among other countries. On Monday, it added Mexico. Prime Minister Bennett met with security officials on Monday to discuss an epidemic of bird flu that has killed thousands of cranes and other wild and domestic fowl in recent days. Citing Yidiot Akronot, the Jerusalem Post reports three outbreaks in chicken coops, prompting talk of importing eggs to avoid a shortage. This has been Ernie Singer at Israel News Talk Radio. The news from Israel is courtesy of INTR, Israel News Talk Radio. Listen online to more straight talk from Israel at IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. Senator Patterson. Mr. Acting Deputy President, I present the report of the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security on its review of the relisting of Hezbollah's external security organisation as a terrorist organisation under the Criminal Code, uh, and I seek leave to speak to the report. Is leave granted? Leave is granted. Thank you, Mr. Acting Deputy President. Hezbollah's external security organisation has been listed as a terrorist organisation under the Criminal Code since 2003. Hezbollah's ESO has been relisted six times since 2003, and this will mark the seventh. The committee was concerned by the decision to, at this stage, only relist Hezbollah's ESO. In its last review of the relisting of Hezbollah in 2018, the committee recommended that the government consider extending the listing to include the military wing of Hezbollah. In this report, the committee goes a step further. We recommend the government consider listing Hezbollah in its entirety as a terrorist organisation. We do so based on the expert evidence received by the committee that the distinction that we currently draw between Hezbollah's ESO and the rest of Hezbollah is an arbitrary one. Joining us tonight on Lachaim is Senator James Patterson. Senator Patterson is the Chair of Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security and the Deputy Chair of Select Committee on COVID-19. Senator Patterson, welcome to Lachaim, to life, Jewish life and more. Thank you for having me. Senator Patterson, last month, Hezbollah's external security organisation, ESO, relisted as a terrorist organisation on the advice of the Parliamentary Joint Committee of Intelligence and Security. But as we heard in the introductory clip, with concern, could you please elaborate on that? Yes, it's a really good question, Morrison. It's a long-standing issue, as you probably know. Australia draws a distinction when in its listing of Hezbollah as a terrorist organisation, and it only lists the external security organisation as a terrorist entity. It doesn't list the military wing nor the whole organisation. Now, that was a position which five or ten years ago was in step with most of our allies. Most of our allies also drew that distinction. But increasingly, countries like the United States, 
Canada, the UK, France, Germany and others are walking away from that distinction. And they are recognising that Hezbollah is one single unitary organisation and that it is an artificial distinction to list only the external security organisation and not the entire organisation as a terrorist entity. So the Intelligence and Security Committee conducting a review of the ESO's listing took evidence from a range of experts from around the world that confirmed this international trend and most importantly demonstrated that there is no meaningful operational separation between Hezbollah's terrorist wing, uh, the ESO, and all of its other activities. It is run by Hassan Nasrallah. Um, the Shura Council that sits under him directs all of its activities, including its military, paramilitary and terrorist activities, and we can no longer draw a meaningful distinction. So we've recommended to government that it's a good thing that they've listed the ESO, but that they should go further and list the whole organisation as a terrorist entity. Fully proscribing Hezbollah as a terrorist organisation. Exactly. Actually, next week, our guest is going to be uh, Lieutenant uh, Colonel uh, Saritza Harvey. She has a, a, an NGO by the name of Alma, and she is an expert on the security issues of um, Israel's northern borders and mm. Hezbollah. I'll have to put you in touch with her. Please. Last week, I asked Senator Van this question, and I would also like your view. Senator Patterson, many in the Jewish community see neo-Nazism as the main anti-Semitic threat here in Australia and globally. 60 Minutes in the Age have been running feature stories on the local neo-Nazis, and yes, they are always a serious source of anti-Semitism and concern, and there is now a call to also have them proscribed as a terrorist organisation, rightly so, and it can't come soon enough. That said, I disagree with the view that neo-Nazism is the main anti-Semitic threat here in Australia and elsewhere. I'm more concerned with the intersectionality of the hardcore left, the not-so-hard left, and Islam. Am I off target here? This is an issue that the committee is currently examining. We're conducting an inquiry into extremism and radicalism in Australia, and we are looking at all forms of extremism and radicalism, uh, inclusive of uh, Islamism, uh, but also uh, some of these uh, neo-Nazi or white nationalist or white supremacist groups. And the assessment of ASIO and its Director General, Mike Burgess, is that the fastest growing threat from a terrorist point of view domestically in Australia is on the white nationalist, white supremacist, neo-Nazi end of the spectrum. At the start of this year, about 40% of ASIO's priority counterterrorism workload was devoted to these ideologically motivated extremist groups. It's now 50%. A few years ago, it was only 30%. So there's no question it's a growing threat. And while these groups like the National Socialist Network, which I've been very publicly critical of, are unquestionably a menace to society, and we do need to look at whether they qualify to be a terrorist organisation, or if they don't, whether we need to change the law to better capture groups like this. Um, they're also not Al-Qaeda. Uh, they're not ISIL, and they have not established a caliphate uh, anywhere in Australia. And so they pose a different threat. The threat that we're concerned about from these groups is that not that organisationally they are currently planning uh, acts of violence. If they were, they would have been rounded up and arrested, as you would have believed. But that individuals could splinter off from these groups and engage in lone wolf attacks against the Jewish community or other uh, sensitive targets in our community. And that is a very real risk, a very serious risk, and it's taken very seriously. Thank you. Two weeks ago in the Senate, you introduced a surveillance legislation amendment, Identity and Disrupt Bill 2020, in response to the growing technological advancement that challenges the ability of our law enforcement and intelligence agencies to combat the most serious type of offending. In a way, this highlights the quickly changing playing field that we have found ourselves in. Would you like to expand on the steps that Australia has and needs to take in order to tame the technological genie that has escaped from the bottle? 
Well, this is a, a profoundly disturbing uh, part of the work of the Australian Federal Police, which is that groups that they target, including terrorists, child exploitation rings and drug traffickers, are becoming increasingly sophisticated in their communications. They are using anonymised and encrypted communications, which allow them to protect their identity and to communicate securely between each other to facilitate their crimes. They're using the dark web to sell drugs, guns, uh, move money and uh, child exploitation material. And it's become increasingly hard for the AFP and their law enforcement partners to crack into those cells because of the result of the encryption and anonymising technology that they use. The government is seeking from the Parliament and our committee has recommended the Parliament agree with some amendments to this new piece of legislation, the Identify and Disrupt Bill that you mentioned. It would allow the AFP to do three things. It would give them three new warrants. One of them is an account takeover warrant where they would be given the legal power to force someone to allow their account to be used by the AFP for the purposes of disrupting a child exploitation ring, for example. Another is a network activity warrant, which would allow the AFP to get onto these networks and monitor the activities from an intelligence point of view. And the third is a data disruption warrant, which would give the AFP the power actually to, in a cyber way, disrupt these rings and prevent them from broadcasting their material or or circulating their material online. Unfortunately, laws like this are necessary because otherwise these groups will continue to evade law enforcement and conduct their nefarious activities in relative security and privacy. And we just can't have that in Australia. Definitely not. Newspaper reports claim that the Australian government is being urged to declare any use of spyware in its intelligence gathering and to refuse to use surveillance products made by an intelligence security company. One assumes that company is Pegasus. Could you please uh, comment on this issue? Yes, this attracts some interesting media coverage over the last few months uh, where uh, it's an Israeli software company, uh, Pegasus, sells surveillance technology to a range of partners around the world. To my knowledge, this doesn't have any Australian government partners, state or federal, but has been used across the Middle East and Asia and Europe. And reports are that some of that technology has been used not to monitor terrorists or other criminals, but journalists and political dissidents and other people. It's an important reminder of a couple of things. Firstly, that our electronic devices, in many ways, wonderful tools, but they're dangerous tools. They can be used by others to surveil us and our activities. And if you want to protect your privacy, you have to be very conscious about the way the vulnerabilities that these devices are introduced into our lives. Secondly, it's a reminder that although it's appropriate to use surveillance and uh, intelligence technology to counter threats, there are governments around the world that are not dictated by the rule of law like Australia is and our allies are like Israel is, and that they are willing to use this technology not just on genuine threats to community safety, but on political inconveniences and irritations. It's not clear to me that it's necessary for Australia to take any action on this because it's not clear to me that it has been used in Australia. We would look at that closely if it emerged that it was being used, but at this stage we don't have any evidence that it is. Ransom attacks on corporate and government data appear to be an extremely regular occurrence. The accepted trend of storing sensitive, non-sensitive data in cloud, which in reality is outsourced banks of computer storage, potentially anywhere on earth, even in hostile jurisdictions, is a potential weak spot, as well as the proliferation of wide area computer networks with questionable security. The Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security is attempting to make corporation leadership responsible for ensuring that their respective organisations' computer systems are protected from such security breaches. How do you see this working out? Yes, this is a massive problem um, faced by uh, every company, uh, every country in the world, where ransomware gangs are becoming highly sophisticated in the way in which they can get onto vulnerable computer systems, 
steal information and lock it up and lock it away and refuse to give it back to the company unless a ransom is paid. Now, this is often criminally motivated and particularly there are gangs operating out of Russia and Eastern Europe that are highly sophisticated criminal gangs. But a few weeks ago, in the attribution of the Microsoft Exchange tax to China, the Biden administration said that they believed that the Ministry of State Security in China was engaging in these ransomware tactics and was employing consultants and contractors who use these ransomware tactics. So there is a blurring of state espionage, cyber attacks and criminal gang activity. What we need to do in response to that is to massively lift the level of cyber literacy and security across our private sector. And we particularly need to do it in critical infrastructure areas, in in systems of national significance. So that includes things like our water supply, our power supply, but also our infrastructure network that delivers our food and groceries and medicines. It includes things like, obviously, our defence industries. Because if they don't lift that level of security themselves to protect themselves, they will be highly vulnerable to this. And it could have profound strategic implications for Australia, not just that you as a customer will be disrupted uh, if uh, a business that you're reliant on goes offline, but our country may be disrupted quite profoundly in the event of some of these attacks. And that might prevent us, for example, if there was a regional crisis from coming to the aid uh, of our friends and allies, and that would be a, a profoundly concerning thing. So we have some legislation before the committee that seeks to address this. Absolutely. Very complex. Senator Patterson, recently there appears to be a global effort to change social media platforms from being just a conduit of information to making it liable for the content of the information posted on their sites. Recently in the US, Google has lost the argument just being a conduit for free speech. Obviously, there are also legal jurisdictions issues that must be visited and probably updated. How do you see this issue panning out? It is a fascinating area of uh, defamation law in particular, and it stems out of a US legal distinction between a publisher and a platform. And it's not a legal distinction which works in the same way in Australia, but it's relevant to Australia for a different reason, which I'll come to in a second. In the United States, effectively, you can be a publisher who makes editorial choices about what is on your platform, like a newspaper is, and therefore you're legally liable for it. Or you can be a platform that doesn't make editorial choices, allows anything to be posted there, and therefore you are not legally liable for what's posted on there. Social media companies in the United States and elsewhere are increasingly trying to have both. They're trying to say, we are a platform and we don't make editorial decisions, but they're increasingly censoring some content on their platforms, which makes them look a lot more like publishers. It's relevant in the US because some of the exemptions that they enjoy in the US might no longer be the case if they're declared to be publishers. In Australia, we don't have that same legal distinction, but it is an emerging and developing area of law. There have been cases where people have been found legally liable for comments left on Facebook underneath their posts, which they have not published themselves, but someone else has published. And there are cases working their way through the courts to to potentially find YouTube, for example, to be legally liable for things that are posted on there. Now, if it were the case, if the law were clarified to make clear, for example, for defamation purposes, that Facebook or Google or Twitter or any of these services were legally liable for the purposes of defamation for things that are posted on their platforms, that would lead them to engage in mass censorship of their platforms to massively reduce the risk, the legal risk that they'd be exposed to. So I think we have to think very carefully. While we all want to get some horrible content online, offline, we don't want the vitriol and the abuse and the anti-Semitism, which we've seen on social media, we don't want that on there. We also don't want um, to squash the public square so much that free speech and free debate can't take place. Yeah, it's a, a thin line and uh, the social media organisations want to have their cake and eat it too. Senator Patterson, the forging and subsequent distribution of COVID-19 vaccine passports must be of a concern to you and the government. 
it must be potentially a global problem since we will have to rely on the integrity of such documents issued in countries that have questionable bureaucratic integrity. What are your thoughts on ensuring that we can rely on such documents as a non-fungible token, better known as NFT, that certifies a digital asset to be unique, not interchangeable and therefore secure, must be considered as a way to ensure the integrity of these passports? Yes, this is a rapidly emerging area and no country has yet come completely to grips with it. Some countries have now started to implement a requirement that you are vaccinated to visit and they've often specified which vaccines you can have. So, for example, if Australia sought to do this, we might say that only a Therapeutic Goods Administration approved vaccine is a valid vaccine for the purposes of entering Australia. But as you say, there will be people who will try and game the system, who will try and lie, and who will try and say they were vaccinated or they were vaccinated with a particular vaccine that might not be the case. And it is going to be difficult for countries to assure that. I agree with you that blockchain is a potential solution here where you've got a distributed ledger that allows you to kind of really robustly verify whether someone has been vaccinated or not. It is going to rely, I suspect, on some bilateral and ultimately multilateral agreements between nations. And there'll be some countries and some jurisdictions that we have greater levels of trust in that we can say if they've got a US government document that says that they have this, that we can have confidence in that. But there'll be some other jurisdictions where we won't be able to have the same level of confidence. And those people might be required to continue to quarantine when they enter Australia, even when quarantine restrictions are lifted for vaccinated people. Terrific. Newspaper reports uh, claim that Australia has dipped into the COVAX Pfizer stockpile intended for poor nations. Have there been attempts to swap the AstraZeneca for Pfizer? And if not, why not? I'm not sure about the truth of those reports. I have seen those reports. One of the things that Australia is doing very generously is donating a very significant amount of vaccines to our near neighbours and friends. We're donating millions of vaccines to the Pacific, countries like PNG and Fiji who are battling serious outbreaks, uh, and also to Southeast Asia. Indonesia is is a major recipient of millions of vaccines. Primarily, that's the AstraZeneca vaccine because that's the one that we have manufactured here in Australia and we have the capacity to donate. Of course, the government is out there trying to get as much Pfizer and other uh, vaccines as possible for Australian citizens. But at the same time, we're upholding our responsibilities in our region to support our friends and our neighbours because their health and their security underpins and supports ours. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Uh, Senator Patterson, you along with David Southwick and I believe Dave Sharma were conveners of the um, Liberal Friends of Israel. How's that organisation coming along? It's a wonderful initiative that we kind of restarted a few years ago. It, it existed about a decade ago, associated with Helen Shardy, the former member of Caulfield, and it fell into a bit of inactivity. And David Southwick and I, along with Tim Wilson, David Bann and others, have, have revived it. It's a really great vehicle for people who support the Liberal Party and who support Israel to come together to work on that objective. And we've held a number of forums and events. We held an initial launch event with Dave Sharma about 18 months ago now in a pre-COVID era where hundreds of people attended in Caulfield. And that was a great launch event. We'd hoped to hold a lot more in person since then, but COVID has intervened. So we've had a number of Zoom events. But membership is open to anyone. You don't have to be a member of the Liberal Party to join. You just have to support Liberal values uh, and the State of Israel, and you're very welcome. And I think there's a lot of people in the community who fit that criteria and please get in touch if you'd like to be involved. Absolutely. I was at that launch and um, great organisation. Senator Patterson, you're a great, great friend of uh, the Jewish community. Really sincerely want to thank you for joining us on L'Chaim. You have been very, very insightful, very, very informative. Yasha Koyach to you. Keep up your great work. Thank you for having me. It's my absolute honour. Stay well. Thank you. I am Pegasus, my name is Horse. I can fly high with you, but I've changed my course. I am Michael, I am Jeffrey and John.
very much acting deputy president i rise to condemn in the strongest possible terms the decision of the wa bar association to defend the right of victorian barrister and former greens candidate julian burnside to make anti-semitic comments on the grounds of free speech anti-semitism is racist hate speech at its very worst it comes in many guises from calling for jews to be killed through to comparing contemporary israeli policy to the horrific enslavement and genocide committed by the nazis I'm pleased Mr Burnside has deleted his tweet and apologised, but in raising my concerns, in lodging my complaint, in speaking out against any form of anti-Semitism, I was and continue to exercise my free speech. And I will not be intimidated. I will continue to stand up every single day for what is right and just and call out anti-Semitism for the ugliness that it is. Thank you. Senator the Honourable Sarah Henderson. 
is a Liberal senator who has represented Victoria since 2019. From 2013 until then, she had been in the House of Representatives. Before entering Parliament, Senator Henderson worked in the media and was the winner of the prestigious Walkley and Golden Quill Awards. Her media work was followed by a career in the law. Senator Henderson, welcome to Lachayam. Oh, Molly, it's absolutely wonderful to join you. Thank you. Good to speak to you too. Two weeks ago, you made a statement to the Parliament concerning a letter sent to you from the President of the Western Australian Bar Association, Mark Kewardin SC. Kewardin was responding to your call for the Victorian Bar Association to consider whether a tweet from Julian Burnside QC may have contravened conduct rules that govern barristers. The tweet equated Israel's treatment of Palestinians to Nazi Germany's treatment of the Jews during the Holocaust. Have you had any response from the Victorian Bar Association to your call? And have you received support from the legal fraternity and community in general for your stance, firstly on the Burnside tweet, and secondly on your opinion that Kewardin's position was untenable? Well, Molly, it's an absolute pleasure to speak to you about this very important issue. And as we know, Julian Burnside, a former Greens candidate and a QC in Victoria, made anti-Semitic comment on Twitter. And I am pleased, Maury, that he has now withdrawn that comment and he has apologised. But when I raise my serious concerns about his conduct with the Victorian Bar Council, including uh, whether he has diminished public confidence in the legal profession or perhaps brought the legal profession into disrepute. And that is one of the rules of barristers, if you like, under the law and enforceable under the law. I raise that serious concern with the Bar Council, and that's now been referred to the Legal Services Commissioner. But in doing so, I received the most extraordinary letter from the West Australian Bar Association, which objected to me raising these concerns and which defended Julian Burnside's right to free speech. Effectively, Murray, the president of the WA Bar was defending Julian Burnside's right to make anti-Semitic comments, and that's really what accelerated this issue. And as a result of its appalling stance, there were many members of the legal profession that contacted me and congratulated me on my stance. And, of course, the wonderful Mark Liebler intervened and wrote to Mr Kewardin and said that he was absolutely astonished about the WA Bar Association's uh, position. He said it was untenable. It should apologise to me. And we now know, of course, that the Bar has effectively apologised, saying it did not realise that Mr Burnside's tweet was anti-Semitic. So uh, it has been a real insight into the ongoing concerns that I have and, and many of my colleagues have in Parliament about many incidents of underlying anti-Semitism and the importance of calling this out at every opportunity. Did you view this uh, apparently sudden so-called better understanding of how such language would be offensive to the community change your view on Kewardin's presidency? Well, look, ultimately that is a matter for fellow barristers in WA, but I certainly did not think that his position was tenable. He showed really poor judgment and he also showed an intemperance in relation to this issue. He thought it was more important to defend free speech than to call out anti-Semitism. And in fact, as uh, Mark Liebler pointed out in his correspondence to the WA Bar, 
I mean, Australians are free to say what they like, more or less, but they will also, you know, suffer the consequences. And as a consequence of Mr Burnside's conduct and his comments, I said, look, I don't think he's the sort of person that should continue necessarily to be a QC. I think perhaps his Order of Australia should be questioned, but I certainly, in relation to the barristers' rules, which are the rules of conduct of barristers, I did raise that particular issue, which is now before the Legal Services Commissioner. Yes, well, thank you for that um, for that answer. Two days ago, The Age featured an in-depth investigation of Australia's largest white supremacist group, the Neo-Nazi National Socialist Network. This group, with links to international terror organisations, instructs its members to focus their anger on Jews, liberal multicultural democracy, black people, migrants and Muslims. The network offers the promise of a coming race war to restore the lost status and superiority of a racially pure white society in Australia. Do you believe that the resources provided to the appropriate agencies in Australia are sufficient to adequately deal with such threats to our way of life? Well, Murray, can I answer it this way? Can I say that whether these attacks on Jewish people are coming from the right, the extreme right, or from the left, and we have seen on the left of politics, whether it's Greens or Labor, some really disturbing anti-Semitic undertones, whether it be from Julian Burnside, whether it be from the Queensland Labor Conference, which passed a resolution which effectively condemned Jewish people, or whether it be the the horrific incidents that we have seen from the extreme right, the attacks uh, against Jewish people uh, in in the dark of the night. No matter what sort of politics this is coming from, this is abhorrent. It must be called out at every opportunity. And as a member of the Australian Parliament and as a Victorian Senator, as I see it, my responsibility to make sure that no one is resourced in any way to conduct these sorts of activities. It's incredibly concerning. And Murray, even yesterday, after the issue with the the unlawful gathering of a a number of Jewish people at the uh, engagement party, and, you know, that that group of people was rightly called to account and and questioned for their behaviour, there was a frontline health worker at Royal Melbourne Hospital who made the most disgusting, revolting, vile comment about that group of Jewish people from North Caulfield where the gathering occurred. And I'm very pleased that she was instantly terminated by the hospital. So, you know, if someone does the wrong thing, as uh, you know, for any Australian citizen, of course, we will have to call it out. But uh, the anti-Semitism that we are seeing on the far left on the extreme Greens Labor left and on the far right is very concerning and uh, I'm on an absolute mission, as are some of my colleagues, of course, led by the wonderful Josh Frydenberg, who is uh, Jewish, of course, and is our treasurer, our deputy leader of the Liberal Party, a magnificent Victorian. Alan Tudge, the Minister for Education, has done some excellent work on this. He wrote a wonderful column on the 5th of August in The Australian talking about uh, some of these issues and particularly from the Greens left, the underbellies of anti-Semitism that we are seeing. So uh, it is our responsibility collectively to call this out, to shut it down and to hold those to account who engage in anti-Semitic conduct, hold them to account for their their behaviour. You know, do you feel that agencies like ASIO, for example, uh, in the broader sense of uh, the uh, racism that uh, seems to be raising its head, are adequately resourced to handle this, what, what to me appears to be a growing problem in society? 
Well, Molly, I heard from ASIO. I am the chair of the Legal and Constitutional Affairs Legislation Senate Committee. So in the last round of estimates, uh, we took evidence from ASIO and certainly there has been a, a growing increase in in very um, threatening and, and concerning behaviour from the far right. There is no doubt about that. ASIO has had a massive boost in its resources and in its funding and so that has been very important because ASIO does obviously very important work right across the board. So under the Morrison government, ASIO is very well funded and very well resourced but it, like um, many others, has recognised uh, the growing threat of the far right in terms of this sort of conduct. And I'm very pleased that ASIO has this sort of conduct in its sights. Mm. Well, that's reassuring. In a way, your answer to my previous question preempted uh, something I was going to talk about later, that it's in relation to how many people receive their news and opinions through the major social networking platforms. And um, the nature of the comments seems uncontrollable from the platform's perspective anyway. How effective do you believe any government can be in controlling the flood of virulent racist content on these platforms? Well, we've taken some very strong action in relation to online safety generally, and we now have the the eSafety Commissioner with greater powers to stamp out and to shut down any sort of threatening or bullying behaviour. Now, of course, that doesn't include all behaviour online, including some racist behaviour. Social media is presenting a very significant challenge, and I think that's why when people go to social media, they really need to go to channels of information that they can rely upon because there's a lot of toxicity on social media, Murray. There's no doubt about it. Hmm. I know for myself, I mean, apart from the reputable news organisations, reputable people who I know on social media, uh, on Twitter, people with blue ticks who you know are the, the real deal, I just ignore so much of what is on social media because so much of it is just vile and, and toxic. And that's why, you know, we took the action that we did with Facebook and, and also with Google where we said it's just not good enough that you can republish the material of reputable news organisations in Australia and not pay for it. So led by Josh Frydenberg, we've now implemented some world-leading reforms in relation to the republication of Australian news sites because we want to make sure that Australians are accessing the very best of information from the very best and most credible of sources. Yeah, hear, hear to all of that. Senator, you spent more than a decade in the media, including time at the ABC. A recent Q&A program featured a segment focusing on the Israel-Hamas conflict, with not one panel member representing the Israeli side of the discussion. The ABC's process of dealing with complaints also left a lot to be desired. Do you feel that the ABC has become more political in its public affairs coverage since your time there? I'm aware of the concerns with that program and there is no doubt that the ABC presented a skewed and one-sided perspective of the situation in in Israel and the conflict between Israel and, and the Palestinians. And I say to the ABC, that is not good enough. I do believe there has been a decline in standards since I worked at the ABC. I have been actually rallying against the ABC for some of the conduct of its journalists on social media, yes. where... Some journalists and some presenters think that they can say anything they like on social media, on their private social media accounts. And the ABC has taken the extraordinary decision whereby it considers that it has no legal or editorial responsibility for the conduct of its presenters and journalists on social media. Now, I know that when I worked for the ABC in the mid-90s, if I had done the equivalent of making a public statement, say if I had issued 
a media release, you know, just on my own letterhead under my own name, when I was the presenter of the 7.30 report in Victoria, uh, I would have been in serious trouble uh, because I was simply not authorised by the ABC to issue public statements in my own name because I was a high-profile presenter with the ABC. But unfortunately, the ABC has taken this cowboy-like approach to the management of its journalists and presenters. And I really feel sorry for some younger journalists, some of the journalists in regional Victoria, where they're, they're not being properly supported by the ABC. And we now have a situation where the ABC has paid for the private legal costs of one of its Four Corners reporters who issued a, a made a defamatory tweet. And the ABC stepped in and paid almost $200,000 for the benefit of this reporter, even though she had done the wrong thing. So I think the ABC is at a real crossroads in the way that it's managing these issues. And I certainly know that the ABC has got to do a much better job at ensuring that it sticks by its statutory obligations, Maury, because under Section 8 of the ABC Act, the ABC board is required to ensure that all information is gathered and disseminated in a manner that is both accurate and impartial. And on that test, the ABC is consistently failing. Yeah, it's very sad, very sad indeed. Liberal Senator representing Victoria, the Honourable Sarah Henderson, thank you so much for joining us on Lachaim and for your strong stance against anti-Semitism and racism in general. It's very much appreciated and thank you again. Murray, it's an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity to speak about such an important issue. You're tuned in to the Lachaim Summer Series on 92.3 FM3 Triple Z with your host, Morris Klein. And yes, he is still my baby brother. We'll now move to Senator's statements and I call Senator Van. Thank you, Madam Deputy President. I rise to make the statement to condemn the utterly odious statements made last week by Mr Julian Burnside, where he compared the treatment of Palestinians to the German treatment of Jews during the Second World War. This vile attempt to equate the people of Israel to modern history's most disgusting acts is atrocious. I would suggest to Mr Burnside that he stops using the Holocaust whenever he has criticism of Israel or their policies, especially as, by his own admission, he's yet to even visit Israel and experience and look at and learn about the situation on the ground. His lack of understanding on this issue is clear and unfathomable that he would still make these comments. I want to make my position known to this chamber <clears throat> and to the uh, people of Australia that anti-Semitism has no place in Australia. And I'll do everything in my power to ensure it is stamped out. As I've said many times in this chamber, Australia has no place for racism, and anti-Semitism is just another form of racism. Thank you, Madam Deputy Chair. Uh, thank you, Senator Van. Joining us again on Lachaim to life is Senator David Van. Senator Van, welcome back to Lachaim. Thanks so much, Morris. Great to be back with you. Senator, the last time you were with us on Lachaim, mid-June, we spoke about the ABC's hostile anti-Israel bias, which in my opinion borders on the new anti-Semitism. Senator Van, in your August 4th Senator's Statement to the Senate, a clip of which we heard in the introduction, you focused on the Julian Burnside Nazi Israel tweet and concluded by stating that anti-Semitism has no place in Australia. 
you have any views on why anti-Semitism has become so openly practiced both globally and locally? Yeah, it's a very interesting question, Morris. I, you know, I, I think it's been seen as okay again for some reason. You know, I know I've spoken out about anti-Semitism in the chamber previously, and, and I speak out about anti-racism. And I think we're seeing somewhat of a rise of the two, and the two coincide. You know, I certainly think the the British Labor Party had a large part to play in a lot of this. Jeremy Corbyn, the, the previous leader's hostile views. So I, you know, I think. Once you know you hear a leader like that starting to talk about it, you know I think you really start to then people think it's okay to talk about. So you know there's some very troubling things that we're hearing, and the number of incidents troubles me greatly. Yeah, definitely. Senator Van, many in the Jewish community see neo-Nazism as the main anti-Semitic threat here in Australia and globally. Sixty Minutes in the Age have run feature stories this week on the local neo-Nazi nutters. And yes, they are always a serious source of anti-Semitism and concern. However, I disagree with the view that neo-Nazism is the main anti-Semitic threat. I'm more concerned with the intersectionality of the hardcore left, the not-so-hard left, and Islam. Am I wrong in this view? Mm, it, it's an interesting one. I've never heard it uh, put like that before. I think there's something to what you're saying. I mean, as we've seen, particularly the hard left and their support of some of the behaviour in the Middle East, I'd like to think about it more. But, you know, I think there's actually something to be said about that. You know, neo-Nazism is, is troubling in and of itself. But, uh, you know, I think, you know, it's very clear that this behaviour is going on well beyond those small fringe groups that, uh, that are practising that behaviour. It has gone more mainstream. And we certainly are seeing it from the left. And the Australian Labor Party hasn't covered itself in glory over the years on this topic. So they deserve to uh, have a good hard look at themselves and, and try and work on some of their behaviour on this as well. But I, I think it's the harder letter that's primarily the problem, like you said. Intersectionality, the new woke word there, it's, it's sort of uh, akin to <laughs> the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Um, it, it's got a bit of that about it, yes. Anti-Semitism has seeped into our university movements, climate, BLM, entertainment figures and politics. This trend is accelerating in large part driven as a political debate focused on the restructuring of our global economic systems. Senator Van, in the same statement to the Senate, you continued by saying that you will do everything in your power to ensure that anti-Semitism and anti-racism in Australia, the oldest hatred, is stamped out. Could you elaborate on how you um, plan to succeed in achieving that? Yeah, well, obviously it's not something I can do just on my own, but you know, I will call out this behaviour. I'm not afraid to call it out. And you know, since I was so honoured by the Victorian people to be elected to the Senate, I have that uh, platform to be able to call out this behaviour. Last year, when people were attacking Chinese people, Chinese-looking people about the COVID virus, you know, I had letters published in many Asian publications saying that this is not who Australians are. And, and for the, the very good reason, Australians are not racist. You know, so when this behaviour keeps creeping in, and we do just see it at the fringes, and it's awfully troubling and awfully distressing when we do, you know, it's got to be called out. You know, as they say, sunlight is, a, is the best disinfectant. And, you know, I think we've seen the effects of, of that on some of the people you were talking about before and, you know, their change of plans over the next year. Definitely. I think you could wear as a badge of honour. And you do call it out. Your uh, statement regarding Mr Burnside was very, very much on point. Uh, I thought it was terrific. On another topic, last week you were quoted in the newspapers saying that uh, an mRNA vaccine-making hub 
would simply make no sense if such a facility is not located in Victoria. Were you saying this because you were a Victoria senator? Would you like to elaborate on that statement? I'd love to. mRNA, no one had heard of it before uh, COVID came along, and now we we talk at Pfizer versus AstraZeneca now. Um, I think they're both very good uh, vaccines, and and I encourage uh, all your listeners to go out and and get vaccinated with either of them, whichever one they can get uh, or whichever one the doctor recommends. The great thing about the AstraZeneca vaccine is we're manufacturing it onshore, and it was a shame that uh, Atagi changed their advice on it as strictly as they did. And I'm not questioning their, their medical advice. We should also always follow the medical advice. But we have the sovereign capability here in, in Victoria, well, where you are in Victoria, I'm stuck in Canberra, to manufacture AstraZeneca. mRNA is such new technology that we don't yet have the capability to manufacture it in Australia. So at the moment, the government has a, what we call an approach to market, asking are there bodies out there, companies, universities, et cetera, that, that can bring this capability to Australia? We should have an answer on that coming out in the next week or two as to what you know, the government may invest in. But you know, I've been also talking about this as a, as a longer-term thing, that we, because we have such, you know, um, the, the best biomedical research in, in Australia resides in Victoria. The best universities. Uh, I was just talking to one of the VCs, uh, vice chancellors of one of the major universities, about this. You know, we have seventy percent of probably what we need to get this capability already exists in Victoria. So that's why I'm saying it, it doesn't make any sense. You know, something that your listeners might not know. You know a, a Victorian professor has come up with a, a candidate for an mRNA COVID vaccine. So, you know, that will hopefully go to phase one trials this year. And if proven and if we could manufacture it, we would have the uh, IP, the technology here. But mRNA is not just good for vaccinating against COVID. It's going to be a life-changing vaccine against the flu that we normally get. They're talking about it has potential to be a vaccine uh, against cancer. And, you know, while not everything it produces might not be a vaccine, there are some therapeutics that could come out of it. So that help with things like Epstein-Barr virus or Zika virus that can be antivirals. So it's not just a vaccine technology. It's what I'd call or what I said in the Senate. It's an enable platform. So it's a new technology. If you want to think about what I mean, just think about, well, the internet was an enabler technology. Silicon chips were an enabler technology. And then these other industries and technologies built on top of them and you had many other products came about because of these one baseline enable platforms. We have the capability, we have the need for it, and it's something that I truly hope we get to see built in Victoria. Definitely. What sort of time frame do you think we're looking at? Well, I think we're looking at a number of phases to this project. There is no quick way to do this. So we may see some way that we can get some vaccines done quickly you know, over the next 6, 12, 18 months. But a full-blown facility, research institute, all these things I think are going to take a, a little bit of time. Hard to put a, a hard deadline on them. But whatever it takes, mRNA technology is very much a sovereign capability that Australia needs. And I think Victoria is the right home for it. Definitely, and it sounds like it would be money well spent. Senator Van, uh, once again, I want to thank you for your great work and support to the Jewish community and uh, for uh, down here in Melbourne um, securing a new licence for J-Air 88FM. They've been off air for about six months with relocating studios. They're back on air soon, but um, 
you played a major role in that um, terrific work there. And I uh, sincerely want to thank you for joining us again on Look Home to Life, and we'll have you back soon. I, I can't wait, and I can't wait to have J.M. Uh, back on, on, on air. And so thank you for, uh, for recognising the, the work that got done there. But it, was, it wasn't just me. Um, it was the, the crew there were, were uh, amazing in work, the work they did. I was just happy to help out. Yeah, definitely. Thanks, especially, uh, especially the number one crew, uh, George Banky. <laughs> Indeed. George Banky. You, you, I, I, I should have mentioned him by name. It, uh, he and I worked together on that project, uh, yeah. you know, um, hand in hand, in, and we're very pleased to get the right results. So um, a, a big round of applause to, to, to George. And, Morris, thank you for having me on again. It's always a pleasure. Terrific. And I note that you're in, you're in uh, Canberra. You're in lockdown like the rest of the rest of the uh, almost the rest of the country. I hope it's not too constricting. Stay well. Uh, I'm, I'm here at Parliament House doing work. We're allowed to do that. And then I go straight home to my apartment. Uh, but uh, I, I do miss my wife and uh, wish I hope I can get back home sometime soon. Terrific. Stay well. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Thanks, Senator. Well, that's it for our first Lachaim Summer Series program with our guests, Senator James Patterson, Senator Sarah Henderson and Senator David Van. Mention Times Free, that's M-E-N-S-C-H-E-N, with their views on anti-Semitism. As I said in the intro, the oldest hatred known to mankind, a cancer which is plaguing the world again in pandemic proportions. By the way, I really expressed what I felt about the world and its anti-Semitism. That would be the end of my time on radio. There will be five more instalments of our L'Chaim Summer Series with some of our delightful guests in our first L'Chaim year during 2021 before we return with new programs and guests February 9, 2022. Right, you'll find in about 15 minutes to half an hour a recording of tonight's L'Chaim program at 3zzz.com.au. Click on the down arrow in the Listen to a Show square and scroll down to the Jewish group. You'll find it there. If you'd like to check out any of our programs or podcasts from 2021, simply Google Anchor L'Chaim to Life Programs and Podcasts. All the links are there. Please check out the other two programs that make up the Jewish group here at 3 Z: The Hebrew Hour, 3 p.m. on Friday, and the Yiddish Hour, 11 a.m. on Sunday. If you'd like to contact us here at L'Chaim, our email is lchaim 3 zzz at gmail.com. For only $16, please consider becoming a member of the Jewish group here at 3 Z. And for seniors, it's just $11. Again, click on 3ZZZ.com.au. Many thanks again to Team Lachaim, Dr. George Banky, the executive producer, Dr. Murray Frankel, and Jeff Deegan. Only two more days left in the year of 2021, which has been another disrupting cholera COVID year inflicting suffering, pain and death throughout the whole world for a second year running, as if life isn't tough enough for many. It looks like better treatments and cures are on the way, and yes, little Israel is at the forefront of the battle against COVID. I say it every week and I'll say it again, Am Yisrael Chai. And forget not, you can say goodbye to 2021 in style with Maury's guest last week, John Foreman's Aussie Pops Orchestra, New Year's Eve concert and the night before, at the Melbourne Arts Centre, Hamer Hall, 8pm on Thursday the 30th, 2pm and 8pm Friday 31st, New Year's Eve. From all of us at Lachaim, George, Murray, Jeff, and yours truly, the baby brother Morris, 
we would like to wish everyone a very happy, healthy, COVID-free New Year in 2022. We're closing L'Chaim 2021 with a great old song from ABBA, their Happy New Year. Please have a good listen to the words. And please join us again next week for the L'Chaim Summer Series. My name is Morris Klein. L'Chaim, I'm Yisrael Chai, and peace. See you.